0: Hello, listeners. I'm Steve Torrance with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Andrew Hull, talks with William Lindsay about his latest book, Res Dog Blues and the Haiku, A Savage Life in Bits and Pieces. They discussed a mix of humor and horror in the book and how it is an honest depiction of Indigenous life on reserve and then in the downtown east side of Vancouver. This episode discusses difficult topics. You can look at the episode description for more information on the topics.
1: Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week with our little podcast from Simon Fraser University. And we're delighted to have William Lindsay with us today. William has a long relationship with SFU in the the past, but he's recently published Res Dog Blues and the Haiku, A Savage Life in Bits and Pieces that's come out just this year. And welcome, William. Delighted to have you on Below the Radar. Hey, it's great to be here. Great. Uh, William, I wonder if we can begin with you introducing yourself a little bit. Oh, well, certainly.
2: I am a status Indian of Canada. Chris Stoney is my background. Uh, my family has their roots in uh, Alberta, around reserves, around Edmonton and northern Alberta. And so I spent a lot of time there. Also Prince George. But, uh, you know, I've uh, lived on the West Coast for probably four decades now. So, so it's my home. So although I have ancestral Prairie Roots, my life has been with the people of the salmon out here and uh, yeah, and I've had a wonderful 25-year career in education, post-secondary education. I worked at Simon Fraser for almost 10 years, went to Concordia University in Montreal for a year, and then came home to uh, retire and just beat the pandemic, thank goodness. And uh, I spent the last two years writing uh, this book. It was a tremendous project. It was life-changing in many ways. It was harmful, but it was also uh, healing as well. Be happy to talk about that. And uh, I was also an educator, a college professor for about uh, 10 years before I got into working for research universities and administrative roles. So so I've been a college professor teaching Indigenous Studies. I've been a uh, senior director Indigenous at uh, two major universities and had a good role at uh, UBC as well, previously as associate director pro tem at the First Nations House of Learning. So, so I've had quite a a very life, a wonderful life, but books done, uh, retired now, and just happy to talk about it today.
1: Right. I just finished uh, reading the book yesterday, William, and it's, um, I bust my gut laughing at times. It's really intense at times. It's really raw with the, with the language. Certainly, some of the language I remember hearing in the 70s and the 80s, and by in the contemporary times that might seem out of date for some people, but those are words that we all remember from that era. And and there's a lot of emotions that it that it hits on. You know, everything from a road trip, the humor in the book certainly comes true, but also the emotional honesty and intensity and the kind of uh, reality of indigenous life on the reserve. And so I wonder if you can begin with talking a little bit about where the book project began for you? You know, as someone who'd been a, a senior administrator at universities, you know, none of us got into universities to be, you know, mainstream university bureaucrats. We both come from the community side of things. And were you always a, a writer? Did you always have a book inside you? And uh, and how did this project begin for you?
2: Yes, it's my second book, actually. Mm-hmm. I published a book in 2002. It was in Korea for Unibook Sync, And it was used to teach English as a second language. It was kind of a one-off project, but it was very exciting to do. I have been a published writer since. I have about half a dozen different academic papers and book reviews that have been published. Probably half a dozen newspaper travel essays in the Sun and the province here in uh, British Columbia. A host of other things, (laughs) op-eds. I just kept writing through the years. And I was also the uh, editor and publisher of some intra-university documents, the Longhouse News and UBC, the uh, SFU News Aboriginal Edition. The annual reports I used to have to write up based on the strategic plan, which I also wrote. So I had lots of practice writing through the years. Uh, this book it flourished as it had its germination about a quarter century ago when I started teaching, and I worked with Marilyn Dumont, who is a famous Métis poet and writer at uh, here in Vancouver. And she showed me her book, and I thought I want to do a book like that. But it took 25 years of uh, experience and uh, further thinking about it. And through the years, I just kept adding notes onto sheets of paper about things I wanted to put in the book when I was ready to write it. And uh, when I returned back from uh, Montreal two and a half years ago, wonderful experience in that city, which I, I write about in the book, I came home and uh, I was actually thinking of applying for another position, but uh, ended up deciding to just write the book and then probably retire. And uh, that's what I did. So, so it was kind of a 25-year project, but it was just the circumstances of the last couple of years uh, during a pandemic and having time and just uh, getting down and just doing it. And uh, the book took 50 drafts. You can imagine doing a paper, 2,000 word paper in university, you might do three or four drafts. Well, imagine doing a 93,000 word book and doing 50 drafts of it. That's, that's how much uh, effort went into it. And um, I'm proud of that. I don't think you'll find a typo in there. I've been rereading it again and I haven't found one. So uh, it's good writing. I would admit that. Uh, I think people would have a reason to perhaps uh, get upset about or criticize some of the language that's used, some of the terminology, uh, some of the experiences I write about, all based on truth, by the way. There's not one thing in this book that's not based on truth. People I did live and see and experience these things. Yeah. So there it is. You know, it's it's been a long journey and uh, I'm glad I'm here now and just doing the publicity part now. And then I can uh, truly retire.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And the book is um, called a novel on the cover, but the specificity of the stories in it certainly invokes a kind of autobiographical aspect to it. And I wonder um, how you can speak to kind of the framing of the book itself. It is a novel, but clearly there's autobiographical aspects of it that you're trying to bring into this form as part of the storytelling of the work. Totally
2: everything that was in the book was uh, either seen by my eyes or experienced by myself or my family, or is a a firsthand account that, you know, proof factual. So all of these things are all based on truth per se, but the names have all been changed. There's been a little bit of, uh, you know, artistic license done in expanding on fictionally on some of the experiences uh, which are based on truth. So as I say in the introduction, I call it uh, a Bildungsroman Romana Clef meaning it's like a, like an autobiography, but you change the names so you don't get into trouble. <laughs> and Bildungsroman is uh, coming of age. Uh, so it is uh, truly a, a coming of age tale of an indigenous youth in the late 60s and in the 70s and growing up in this terrible environment at times, but also a very loving and, uh, and learning environment as well. You know, and and that's something that I've heard about from uh, different uh, educators who have commented to me about the book so far is that, um, you know, it's a surprise to them to find out that uh, a res dog, as I call the characters from the reserve in the book, hence the title, Res Dog Blues, it's been quite a journey there, my friend. And, um, you know, I call it a searing tale. It's hard for people to read in certain parts, especially up front. But, you know, I, as some of the people I've heard from about the book so far have said, you know, just push through those odd chapters that are tough to read, but based on truth, because there's sure a lot of love in this book and a lot of good lessons for life, for recovery, for education, for teachers, uh, for institutions, and all for today's world, even though this book is based on events that took place, you know, over 40 years ago now.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the interesting aspects as well, this is clearly an indigenous story from the ground. And at the same time, you're splicing in the music of the era punk rock music, social justice music, Uh, you've got film references, you've got historical literary references, you're quoting Dante and Shakespeare. And I think it also speaks to the the complexity of Indigenous identity in a colonized place like Canada, that these multiple references and experiences are being brought in. Things aren't unilingual or one-dimensional, but that there is this sort of bringing together of these different stories and experiences and also turning these things on their head to make them mean something else as well. And I'm wondering if you can speak to these references that you make, because clearly you're a lover of music. You you love these films as well, but you have uh, particularly the Indigenous experience that kind of turns these things onto their head in terms of what they might mean.
2: That's something I've heard, too, from uh, some scholars out there who are reading the book or have finished it. And they say it's a shock to them that somebody from the reserve could be presented as this knowledgeable, but that's how we are. I know because I've worked on the downtown east side with programs through SFU and through UBC, and I found there people from the street had great, great, great intelligence. They were well-read. They could express themselves well, and they could challenge you as intelligently as, as anybody in any university classroom I've ever been. So I know that there's amongst Indigenous people, there are very talented and hardworking people, but we're quiet too. You know, we're, we're a little quiet about that sometimes and we need to be perhaps a, a little louder about that. But you said the music and the films, absolutely. Like these were things that saved my life growing up. I talk about the importance of films and just like they, they're they like literature to me. There's lessons for life in movies and And some of these movies I quote, too, in particular, The Warriors from 1979 and Saturday Night Fever from 1977, these were landmark films in my life because I was living at the time like the characters in those films and, you know, was looking for a way out. And so now I can look back and gauge my progress in life since through the lenses of those films and those times. You know, because we were living that way then and now and now I'm not. So it's, it's interesting to look back now at, at those two films and others, but the music as well. Like uh, I grew up with punk music and uh, the love for that is is stressed throughout this book. I made sure to follow copyright laws and, and not use any song lyrics at all in this book. I did my research about that and even approached Simon Fraser University's ethics office to ask about using song lyrics. And he says, no, don't. It's okay to use album titles and song titles, which I do throughout the book. And I find that interesting because as you're reading each of these chapters, there's often a song or an album that's alluded to, or or sometimes many in different chapters. And, you know, it stays with you because you think about the story, uh, you think about the poetry, but you also think about the music. So it's just that kind of a book. I don't think it's a book you can rush through. The chapters are short. Uh, They're all short, shorter than normal books. And there's reasons for that. And one of the reasons is it allows you to, one or two or three chapters at a time, soak in what's there. Appreciate the music references that are mentioned there. And appreciate the original haiku poetry, which I love as well, which is found in every chapter in the book as well. All of those things, uh, it just, it was designed to make it a sort of multi-nuanced philosophical project that would appeal to people across the board to learn a true story about Indigenous people. And I guarantee you, that unlike a lot of other books out there about these issues, pardon the expression, but there were no white hands editing this book. So this is a true Indigenous First Nations story told uh, unfiltered and it's tough to read at times, but it's also a very uplifting book, especially yet. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I-, I won't uh, ruin the ending unless you're going to ask a question about it, but uh, I've heard from a-, a couple of important high-level scholars that have said, you know, they really appreciated the positiveness in the book, but also how it ended as well. It just ends in, in a place where, you know, there's a future involved. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering uh, when you thought about the narrative of the book, because you're trying to pull on so many threads and kind of chart your own path in terms of what a novel might look like. Who are some of your writing influences you know you you sort of mentioned you know Jack Kerouac on the road and then you kind of flip it on its head and be like uh, we've done way more than that <laughs> and uh, some of these uh, classics that uh, you know have a certain place in a traditional Western academic canon you've sort of carved your own path here but I'm wondering um, in writing your own book or the people that you've read that you found like they could really carry a narrative or that spoke to you in a particular way that you think, influenced how the book was written in some way or you look to for insight?
2: Uh, There's many that come to mind, but a couple of examples are Sherman Alexie from the United States. He's a well-known writer and uh, he doesn't hold back either. You know, his writings are amongst the most banned books in institutions and in schools. So he doesn't hold back either. and So he was kind of a role model for me to talk about these issues honestly without holding back. So Sherman Alexie, probably poet Marilyn Dumont, who works at the U of A right now. Her books of poetry uh, influenced me to include poetry in my own book. So that comes uh, directly from her. And um, I love literature of the world. I've enjoyed reading Western literature and also Eastern literature and Eastern forms of art like haiku. Uh, I've enjoyed all of those things, you know. So I I mentioned in my acknowledgments page many of these famous people. I mentioned Chief Dan George (laughs) as a particularly important influence. I mentioned him throughout the book. People like uh, Homer, Matsuo Basho, Emily Dickinson, Jack Kerouac, Dante Alighieri, John Lennon, Thomas Hobbes—you know, these are some, you know, famous writers and authors and artists whose work I came across through the years, and I really enjoyed. Even like Franz Fanon, Walt Whitman, Winston Churchill, George Orwell, Maya Angelou—these are all influences that have influenced how I put this book together, and uh, I I give them acknowledgement. So yeah, those are just some of my influences.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I think really carries the narrative is the humor in the book. Now, I I know you from before, William. I know you to crack a joke or two, and you have some great humor. But I, I was busting my gut laughing throughout the book, and it helped carry me through the more serious and intense parts of the book. And wondering, you know, the role humor plays in your own life, but also in the way that you worked it into the narrative, why was that such an important part of the structure of the book? To me, it was like something that was really, it carries all throughout the book. And so it's something you just have a way of um, dropping things down out of the blue that just like you comes out of nowhere and just realized you got hit with a William Lindsay zinger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, humor is something that's not a, you know, specific
2: to the indigenous world, but it's something that's always been there for me. And as I say in the book, when we joke and, and tease you and we do those kinds of humorous things around you, it means that we've accepted you. Teasing means acceptance in our world. But, you know, the influence of Trickster, he's, he's a humorous, you know, supernatural figure. I guess I'll just say this. One of my favorite chapters in the book has to do with suicide. It's called Suicide Solution. And even though it's probably the most difficult topic to discuss, I take it on but I turn it on its head and make it probably one of the funniest chapters in the whole book. And it ends off beautifully and hopefully. So here's this dark, darkest thing you can possibly talk about. And I turn it on its head and say, yes, I tried these different things, but I survived. Here I am. Here's who I have to thank for that. And uh, there's humor throughout that chapter. Yeah. You'd have to read it to truly get uh, the numerous humorous references uh, therein. But uh Joking has always been a part of things. I used to do a joke of the day in uh, all of the offices where I was, you know, the the supervisor and the boss. And uh, it just made the office environment like a family. And people, you know, it puts everybody at ease, you know. Even at these fancy dancy university dinners we used to go to, sitting at a table with important people, me and uh, Gary George or Ron Johnson from the Office for Aboriginal Peoples would be sitting there starting to joke and And pretty soon we had the whole table joking and talking and laughing, you know. So that's how it is in our world, and and uh, that is expressed throughout this book from start to finish for sure. (laughs) Amidst the horror, there's a lot of horror in this book. I can't uh, hide that. You know, there's a couple of chapters about sexual abuse and horseshit that you know it's hard to talk about even. But uh, but I I got it written out, and uh, you know I paid a price for it. I'm sure you read in my introduction that. you know, I suffered a bit of a breakdown last year, over about a year because of the book, the contents in it, the childhood trauma that was uh, the things that I'd forgotten for decades suddenly were there in my face again. And, you know, I've had a I had a bit of a breakdown, but, uh, you know, I've, I've recovered from that, thank goodness. But, uh, you know, because of this work and what it touches on, I, I've, I've seen a part of myself no man should ever see. You know, I've never gone through something like that. So, so it's a book that took a little bit of my indigenous soul. And I've been telling people that. And once they read the book, they can see why, you know, because there's humor, but there's horror as well. So so it all balances out in the end. Mm
1: -hmm. William, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read um, a page from the book, uh, a selection, whichever one you'd like for a moment.
2: Oh, sure. Absolutely. I will go to uh, a chapter dealing with our road trip. The centerpiece of the tale is a Homer-like odyssey where four of us travel throughout the United States and to Montreal and then come back across Canada. It's like an eight-month-long journey and adventure, all based on truth again. And uh, that's the heart of the book, and everything else is built around that. So I'll just turn to 76 here. So uh, Arches and Mounds is Chapter 40. We're in the midst of a road trip. We're hitting uh, St. Louis, and outside of St. Louis, which isn't far from Memphis, which I also talk about, and Graceland and It who's important in Indian country as well. Uh, but here we are in St. Louis, and uh, we're going to go to Cahokia, a very famous uh, archaeological site just to the north of St. Louis. So arches and mounds, and I begin with a uh, short haiku. An arch and a mound. If past is prologue, one day we shall build again. St. Louis, Missouri, the gateway city, the gateway to the west, shit to that. They built a big motherfucking arch next to the Mississippi River, which flows through the city, to commemorate the settlement of the American West, lands taken by force or fraud from the Indians who had lived there for millennia. That was enough to turn us Indians off this town. I'm at the corner of 4th Street and Shithole Avenue, yelled Luke with the arch in the background. We scored some hash oil and got the hell out of there. We wanted to see Cahokia. One good thing about St. Lou was the music. A town that produced Miles Davis and Chuck Berry couldn't be all bad. I certainly love the prominence of the musical art form called the blues. It's in their bones. I knew of Robert Johnson and Howling Wolf from Uncle Jesse's collection. and inspired Dylan, who was one of our mates on the trip, took the time to quickly learn a few blues standards. It was fun watching him slowly figure it out, especially the guitar slide which he had shoplifted in town, learning from a sheet music book which he had surprisingly paid for. Call me Mississippi D, he said when he finally got it. It appeared to us that the Negro pioneers in this biz were speaking to Indian hearts too, for the songs of the plantation resonated in the reservation experience. The Res Dog Blues sounds about right. And then I go on to describe uh, our visit to Cahokia. There's some music in there, some uh, Bob Marley, very appropriate. It's a wonderful place. I've been here Cahokia. I recommend any indigenous person or ally go visit it because it'll make you have great pride in the indigenous peoples in that part of the world. So, just a little introduction there. And, you know, I I just love reading parts of the book here and there. And maybe I'll just mention one more thing here. I quote Maya Angelou a few times, very important writer. Uh, So, near the end of the book, chapter 58, entitled Je n'ai pas de regret, which in French means I have no regrets. My haiku begins It says, Hearts do heal in time, stand and flourish, I intend. Cage birds free, dreams too. And then I begin by saying, through the sweetness and shadow of being, through life's triumphs and tragedies and all its adversities and successes, we keep going because we have to. Maya Angelou was right. I now know why the cage bird sings. So that's just an introduction to one of the chapters where I go on to talk about, Hey, I'm ready to take on life now. You know, I've, I've merged from the horror and here I am ending the book at 20 years old, ready to go on and, and take on life. And, and that's how I begin one of the concluding chapters in I give Maya Angelou a lot of credit. She's one, one of my influences about. Was that good enough to read that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. William. Just a little taste. <laughs> yeah. In in writing the book, and we were talking before we, we started the interview, but just around, you know, I think your hope that this will be taken up at universities and other places in terms of its reception. And I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to who the book is written to or who the book is written for. It's really written for everybody,
2: like a non-Indigenous people can get a really true story about what it was really like growing up in the 60s and 70s. This is what it was like, no holds barred. And you can imagine emerging from that. And, um, you know, what do you do with your life? You know, I was fortunate enough to realize at 20 years old that I I needed to change my life. And, and so I did. So this book is designed to get non-Indigenous people to get to know our world better especially in an age of reconciliation right now. You know, how can you reconcile with something if you're not getting the full truth about it? You know, well, that's another thing. The discovery of those residential school grave sites last year, those mass graves, I was in the midst of this book when that was happening, and holy crap, that was part of the reason why I had a bit of a breakdown there. And I give Kerry Price of uh, Lake Canadien de Montréal credit because he stepped forward himself last year and said, I'm suffering and I need some time to recover And uh, I can relate exactly to that, because at the time I know exactly how he felt and what I was going through. And so I really, really respect Terry Price for that. But um, this book is for Indigenous people as well, because Indigenous people, as I describe in the book, we are not a monolithic entity as Indigenous people. There are different segments to our society and even different segments within those segments. So it's a very complex uh, society that we're a part of the Indigenous people. And this book goes to great lengths to differentiate between these different groups and some of the dynamics and jealousies and, and controversies and conflicts and also getting along that happens between these groups. Uh, I bring that out in the book as well. But it's a book of healing. There are certain parts of this book that I still go back to. It's, uh, as I said, it, it hurt me writing it, but now it's helping me to heal. So I'm hoping a lot of our indigenous people and youth, especially, will look at the parts in the book where I talk about goal setting, uh, how to set goals, how to reach your goals, things that you can enjoy in life that can help you to enjoy life and keep you alive and uh, looking forward. Uh, All of those things are in the book, so it can. It's a book for indigenous people as well. But it's. I don't speak down to my audience, as you know. Yeah, I use a lot of intelligent comments and quotes, and I give acknowledgements to others where I, you know. I bore different parts of things that they said, and and it's in the book. And, um, you know, so I don't talk down to my audience. So I'm hoping that uh, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous will look at this and think, well, here's an example of the kind of person that we didn't know about. That there could be someone who comes from the reserve, who grew up uh, around the downtown east side, and and downtowns around Calgary, Edmonton, Prince George, places like that. And, uh, boy, this guy can write. You know, and he has perhaps some talent there. And, you know, that's uh, something that um, I would like non-Indigenous society to get more used to, is that we're as great a writer as anybody else. And I know from personal experience, we're as smart and intelligent as anybody else. We can even express ourselves better. Uh, And that's what I'm hoping this book does, is to get people to sort of think about things in that light, that Indigenous people have a lot to contribute to literature, to this country, to the arts. Me, I'm a, I'm a writer and I play guitar. That's my art. But there's poets out there. There's performance artists. There's actors, actresses, directors, Indigenous people that are making their marks. So I hope people are able to think of Indigenous people in a much more positive light through, through experiences like these books and the works that others do. Mm-hmm.
1: There's a part in the book, William, where you're on the, the road trip and I think it's somebody's older brother. But you start talking about red power and AIM and, and all of these things. And so you have this sort of process of politicization that's happening through the road trip as you're visiting places. And I found that really poignant. William, I'm wondering if you'd like to add anything about the book that we haven't had a chance to, to speak about yet.
2: Boy, um, I self-published the book. And the reason I did that is uh, I figured that mainstream publishers wouldn't let me get away with the languages and the experiences that I describe in the book. and. I'm glad I did it this way. I decided to do it in the fall because as the book was being completed, I was still waiting to hear back from uh, two publishers that I submitted the book to where it was okay to do so simultaneously. And I was just waiting on these guys. And I finally decided, well, why don't I just self-publish it myself? Because I have confidence in the book. I have confidence in the writing. I would challenge anybody to find one typo in this book. Uh, that's comes from a lot of writing and experience, of course, as an educator and administrator through the years. Um, but I saw published and I don't regret it. The reviews I'm getting so far uh, up on Amazon and uh, hearing from colleagues who are currently reading it are excellent. And they find it a very intelligent book. So, as I say, I don't speak down to my audience. And um, this is the kind of book I'd, I'd recommend for anybody for all kinds of reasons. And uh, as I say, It's been a wonderful journey. And I noticed since I decided to self-publish, all of these doors have just opened. And so I view it as the wave of the future, because if you're a good writer, because if there's typos in a book, people will just, they're not interested in it. So you got to have a typo-free book, really well written, a great story, great characters, a great conclusion, a good introduction, honesty, emotion, and power. Uh, That's what I found I was able to do with this book because I decided to self-publish. And so I would encourage anybody to do that. For me, with respect to the publishing business, they hold all the cards. You know, they expect you to wait for them and it can be a year, two years. They don't get back to you. You question them, hey, how's it going with my, you know, and they don't get back to you. And and then once they pay you the upfront fee for the book, it's theirs to do what they want with. They can edit it. They can change the title. They can take chapters out. They can change the wording, the language. (laughs) So I decided, no, that this book is too important to do that. During a time of reconciliation and during a time when residential schools are, they're finding masteries at every bloody school now, it's time for a book of honesty and truth. And, and that's what this book is. So, so I'm very proud of it. As I said, some of the topics and the language, uh, it's, it's an adult book for sure, but uh, I don't think anybody could criticize the writing. If you have confidence in your writing, you can self-publish and it can be successful. You just have to follow up and do the work yourself, publicizing it and doing what we're doing today. You know, I I have a book review coming up in the Vancouver Sun in early April about the book because I reached out to them and he read it and liked it and wants to write about it. It's in three libraries now. I hope to do an official book launch now that the pandemic is over in another month or two. It's in the hands of influential people who are considering using it in their classrooms right now. I really hope they do. Uh, By classrooms, I mean post-secondary. It's not a book for for high school, uh, unless you're like, you know, and it really, I give that caveat warning up front, uh, it's not a book for kids. So, but still, it's based on truth. It's a powerful book. It's an emotional book. And I know people who read it will like it because everybody, to a, a man or, and to a woman who's read it so far, has told me they, they really like the book. It's something different. It's something they actually have never, I've had this comment twice. It's like something they've never read before. And that's because of the poetry, the prose, uh, the music references throughout just the honesty of it like who the heck writes about some of these things like there's really some tales of horror and tales of hope in here you know and uh, I, I don't hold back but uh, as I say, it's all based on truth.
1: <laughs> William, thank you so much for sharing this wonderful story. Uh, wonderful book that I just finished yesterday It's been so wonderful to hear you talk about it. So thank you so much for joining us on below the radar.
2: Uh, hi hi, as we say in my language. And I really thank you. It's been an honor to do this today. You know, I worked at Simon Fraser for 10 years, and it's nice to be touching base a little bit here. Uh, as I say, I'm retired now, and, and the book has opened up a few options for the next year or two, and and uh, then it leads into kind of a more permanent retirement after that. But uh, I've been working since I was 15, so it's time for me to, to go to pasture, so to speak. Thanks for this today. It's been really an honor to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much, William. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Vancity Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with William Lindsay. Head to the show notes to learn more about the resources mentioned in the show. We release episodes every Tuesday, so make sure to subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcasting app of choice to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks again for tuning in.